millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Journalist Eamon Ashton Atkinson was a gay man from Brisbane living in London and dealing with the traumas of his past. There's a lot of hate out there. In a way, the, these people who, who called me a poofter and a faggot and who made my life hell and, and who made me on several occasions want to take my own life, I have them in a, way, a strange way to thank because it gave me this fighting spirit. His salvation came in the form of the King's Cross Steelers, the world's first gay rugby club. Every two years, the gay clubs from around the globe get together to compete for the world championship of gay rugby, the Bingham Cup. Eamon filmed his team's journey as they attempted victory at the 2018 championships in Amsterdam. Along the way, he learned that happiness can be found where you least expect it. I hope people see my story and, and don't just see the trailer or see the headline and go, oh, he's some poofed reporter who's left-leaning and has an agenda. I hope they watch my documentary, even if they're sceptical. You know, I challenge you to watch it and make your own mind up afterwards. I'm Sandra Sully, and this is 10 News First Person. By chance, I stumbled across this gay rugby club that ended up changing my life. I met my husband through the club. I made so many friends and I found my place to belong. I had the opportunity to uh, pick up my camera and hire a lens and make a documentary and all these things kind of happened by accident that led to the film being made. Your story is quite remarkable. The core message is about finding your place where you belong, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. And that's something that I guess I was looking for for a long time. You're a paid storyteller. What was it like telling your own story? It was really weird, <laughs> to be honest. At first, I, uh, I filmed the three characters and I, I recorded this tournament and my intention was that I was just going to let them tell their own story and I was just going to edit it together. And I cut about 40 minutes of the documentary and I reformatted my computer because my edit suite was quite slow. And I forgot to back it up, so I lost 40 minutes, which was like weeks' worth of work. I just threw the hard drive in a cupboard and I couldn't bear to go back to it for another year. And then I moved to New York from London and Israel Folau started tweeting and posting all his homophobic comments. And it was kind of like a sign. I was like, I've got this amazing story about why gay rugby um, means so much to so many people and why these gay players deserve their place on the pitch. And it was a story that I knew I had to tell. So I pulled out the hard drive and I sort of thought, well, I have to start narrating this film to drive it forward and, and make it work. And if I'm going to put my voice on it, I need to explain to the audience uh, why is there this random Aussie talking about this British gay rugby club? And if I put my voice on it, I have to tell my own stories. That must have been difficult to relive that 
what you hear on the soundtrack is the first take and me just telling the story for the first time and actually me telling the first the, the story for the first time ever i'd never told anyone that before so yeah how i was outed at at my school a guy that i had one of my first sexual experiences with secretly filmed it and he had sort of fallen in love with me and he became quite crazy i guess in a way and dropped out of school and he came back one lunchtime and started playing this tape to other people and i didn't know about it people from other year groups were sniggering at me and yelling out this guy's name and i was just kind of dying inside and it was quite strange going back and telling that story in the film because i'd pushed it away in in a box and almost feel like i'd lived three or four or five lives since then and I had to kind of revisit these things that had happened that were quite traumatic as a kid and go, wow, actually that stuff did happen, but I'm ready to talk about it now. If I can take you back to when you were in London, how did you find the Steelers and what made you know that you wanted to play sport again? It was like, okay, I need to make friends. I'm here in this new city and I know one person. And a friend of a friend, her school friend was in London and part of this club. And then my flatmate who I met off this flatmate website randomly was kind of a casual player in the club. And so I just kind of fell into it in a way. I went down to one of the training sessions and I was quite overweight and I could barely run 50 metres. And the first warm-up exercise was, of course, running laps around the oval and I was like 10 miles behind everyone else. I was the last person there. Everyone had finished and they were stretching. I was like, I'm not giving up. I'm not going to walk. I'm going to keep running. Very um, blobbing along and they were all clapping me. And yeah, that's kind of when I knew that this is a, a pretty special place. And when I, had, I played my first game, it all came back from when I was 12 and um, I think I scored like three or four tries. So instantly everyone was like wanting to chat with me and patting me on the back at the pub afterwards. And so it was, it was such a special experience. You knew from a very young age that you were gay. When did you come out to your own family? I came out just before my 18th birthday. I was at university and I finally realised that actually no one cares about <laughs> you. They're too busy worrying about themselves. My dad actually said to me, oh, I'm really glad you have come to terms with this because we thought you were gay when you were 12, didn't we, mum, didn't we? And uh, I used to play the piano and be very flamboyant and love performing. And my favourite thing was this pink rug I used to carry around. So I look back now and it's very obvious if you're a parent and it was just lovely that my parents gave me that space to work out who I was. And I think the documentary fleshes out that reality that until you are your complete authentic self and there is total acceptance in all aspects of life, you're never really truly you. Everyone talks, particularly in Australia, about sport being the great leveller. Actually, I think Nick, the coach, phrased it so well when she said, these boys never felt that on the sporting pitch they truly belonged and it wasn't until they had their own championship and they owned the right to play. I think that's the critical part of, of the Steelers' story is they took charge of their own life. They took charge of their world and said, we're entitled to be accepted. We're entitled to own a place in the sporting landscape. Yeah, 100%. I didn't get to delve into the history of the club as much as I want. But when I was doing a bit of research for the film, 
some of the older boys who were there from the beginning 25 years ago when they were the first rugby club in the world that was gay. They were telling me stories about how they sent letters in, uh, to all the clubs in Essex and England asking for matches. And <laughs> it was around April Fool's Day and the clubs just thought it was an April Fool's joke. <laughs> and when the, those teams that did eventually play, there was, of course, the homophobic comments that you would expect. But there was also a lot of support and a lot of the teams were surprised that they're just regular blokes who enjoy rugby and they just happen to be gay. They did kind of want to fly the flag, but in a different way. So around that time, there were battles on the streets um, in pride marches to decriminalise homosexuality. And they had a, a, a register of criminal convictions for people in the past. And there were calls to get rid of that. So there was very much a, a fight happening on the streets. But they wanted to kind of have a different fight and show the people down in, in the deep corners of Essex, in, in the rugby, rugby clubs where you've got this big burly blokes that, hey, we're just like you. We're not a stereotype that you might happen to catch a glimpse of on the TV. We're just like you and... We love rugby and we want to play. Yeah, exactly. That was how they, they kind of went about it. And Drew, the, uh, the drag queen in the, in the film, he talks about how when he started this drag show, this amazing fundraiser for the club, some of the players were really against it because they were saying you just are fitting into this stereotype that all gay men just want to dress up in women's clothes and he makes the point in the film which I think is quite powerful that you can just be whoever you want to be if you want to dress up in drag go do it if you want to be super macho and you know work out in the gym and and you can do it but you can both be rugby players you know, we had some pushback being drag queens in the locker room with other rugby players and creating that image of butch queens in drag and butch queens out of drag. And some of our, you know, previous members didn't really, didn't really appreciate that because they thought we were feeding into that gay stereotype. When actually, they looked at it the wrong way. We were actually welcoming and promoting and kind of congratulating people who are their own people, that they can be rugby players, that they can be drag queens, they can be whatever they want. He's a firecracker and he tells an important story about identity because even in the gay world, there's like people that frown their nose at the gay men. There's people that frown their nose like towards trans people or drag queens. He kind of challenges that. One of the the things I keep getting asked about is why do we need a gay rugby club? You know, if you're wanting equality, shouldn't you just play in a normal club and kind of show everyone that you're just like them and not separate yourself? And I think there's some truth in that. But when you delve a bit deeper and you realise that actually there is this need for this community to find that place to belong and be surrounded by people who went through the same things. And for me, I came out and everyone was happy and I got on with my life, but I realised that I had all these kind of scars that would rear themselves in unexpected ways. I was basically bullied every day from year eight up until year 12, and I went to three different schools because my family moved around in that time. When I was working as a local news reporter in Townsville, I had a bit of conflict with some of the people I was working with, and it just brought me right back to where I was at high school, and I was really struggling. I remember driving on the highway in Townsville and like everything in my body was saying, drive into the oncoming traffic. I don't know why. It's that mental health depression making you think that way. 
and I pulled over and I called my best friend and I, she said, drive straight to a doctor and, and I did. And that was the first time I started on antidepressants. It's interesting, I, I got a message actually this morning from a guy from one of my old schools who was one of the bullies and he said that, oh, my mum saw you on the news. I hope you're going really well. Wasn't it funny back when this happened in rowing class or in, in, in our rowing team? And I couldn't even remember what he was talking about. And I sort of said, oh, well, to be honest, my memories of school are kind of clouded by all the bullying that I got. And he apologized and said, I'm really sorry if I contributed to that and blah, 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 blah. And it's funny, isn't it? Just how one thing that was so devastating to me wouldn't have even, no one else would have, would have even thought about it until now. And I don't really know how to kind of respond to this person because in a way, the, these people who, who called me a poofter and a faggot and who made my life hell and who made me feel tiny this big and who made me on several occasions want to take my own life. I, I have them in a way, a strange way to thank because it gave me this fighting spirit. Your documentary is as much about mental health as it is about sexuality. Yeah, because they're intertwined, aren't they? Definitely like suicide amongst gay people or queer people is through the roof. So many people I know have kind of some element of depression or unhappiness. It's rife, whether it's social media or, or whatever it is. It's it's out there and it's huge. And often we don't even know about it. Someone can be putting on a smile and inside they're dying, like they're, they're just feeling terrible. If I didn't find the Steelers, I think I would just be still searching for that, that thing that I, I didn't know what it was or, or how to fill that hole, but I knew there was a hole there. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Professor and the Hack. Accessible politics with just a touch of depth. I'm Hugh Rimmington. And I'm Peter Van Onselen. You can find us, The Professor and the Hack, wherever you find quality podcasts. Steelers on three. Three, two, two one. Steelers! You'd played with the Steelers yourself. Why didn't you play in this game? I got married to my husband, John, who was a player in the club. And our wedding was a few weeks before this tournament. My whole family came over to London and I hadn't seen them in about two years. And my brother came down to watch me play a game. Now, my family hadn't seen me play a game of rugby since I was 12 years old. So I was really keen to impress. And I was trying to go extra hard into a tackle. And I hit my head against the other player and got a really bad concussion. (laughs) So I knew I was out for the tournament. And the option is you go to the tournament or you stay on the sideline support and you get drunk for five days. I didn't particularly just want to do that. I always had in my mind that I I wanted to prove to myself whether I could 
make a documentary. That was always a dream, a personal goal. And I always knew the Steelers would be great fodder. I kind of felt like a bit of a fraud there because I was just standing with my camera, filming my friends, waiting for stuff to happen. And it was a bit of a joke almost. And I had no idea whether I was going to get gold. And then by chance, um, I knew that I really wanted Simon to be involved. And he took a bit of convincing because his father was in surgery, his sister just had a baby, and he eventually came around. Rugby, I like, it sounds like it's a bloody religion when I say it this way, but I'd started to question rugby, you know, which is nuts because I played rugby since I was seven years old, you know. When I got to the rugby club and it was bringing out all the best of me, but I was still depressed, like I was lying on the floor, you know. And this is where I think I finally ex- realized that I was would be diagnosed with depression was I had my rugby back. You know, I had everything on paper was then fine again, but I was still feeling really low. One special thing that happened as a first time filmmaker, it was me and, and a budget of zero. It was me and my camera and them and a light in a room talking. If there was a producer there with a sound man and another cameraman and a lighting person, like there's no way they would have opened up and talked like that. Aggression. Brutality, communication, okay? Give me ABC. That is all I want from you for 40 minutes. Nick is actually the director of coaching at the Steelers and she is a woman, which is unusual. Yeah, and it's very interesting because when I joined the club, the thing that has entered my mind and who is this woman? Is it some kind of politically correct appointment that she's the coach? I didn't in- intend to include a, w- a woman in this story about a game in his rugby club, but it actually turned out to be my favourite part. And through the film, I hope like your stereotypes get broken down because she talks about her struggles as a woman. And I think there's a very interesting sort of sub-theme in the documentary about how even this group, gay men, who derive their identity from being discriminated against, sometimes they do a lot of discriminating themselves, especially towards women. One of the kind of dignitaries from the league went straight up to Alex and spoke to Alex. And I was like, actually, this is our director of rugby. So I feel like I'm still needed to be validated by men. I've been the physio, I've been the water girl, you know, the referee often doesn't recognise me. I had no idea the extent of it. I was shocked. She is committed. She played for Wales, loves the team, and she is one of the best coaches I've ever had. I found that heartbreaking. She told me this story, which I didn't have time to include in the film, about how the team won a big game the previous year and they were all out celebrating and they went to this big party, but they forgot to invite her. And they were away and she just sat in the hotel room crying because she's like, well, no one joins a gay men's rugby club to hang out with a lesbian. In some ways, I felt like maybe Steelers would have been one of the only clubs to have given me the opportunity to be director of rugby. I I feel those daily struggles, and I I don't think the players see it because they've gone past seeing me as a female, and they just see me as the coach. So for them, my my, um, gender is invisible to them. I'm just, I'm just Nick. But for me, it's it's always, it's, it's always sitting there with me. So I always feel judged. I always feel that I have to do a better job than other people to be able to say, I'm, I'm okay as a coach. One of the most beautiful moments is towards the end of the film when she talks about what it would mean to win the Bingham Cup, which is the tournament where this documentary is set. And she, she said that 
if she won, she could go home and she could say that she coached the best gay men's team in the world. And that would be very special. And that's one of my favourite moments in the film. There's a lot of courage in this story, Eamon, and you can see that through everyone. But it is ultimately about self-worth and knowing that you, you own a spot and you found your voice. You've used this as a vehicle to remind us all that you can never give up the fight for acceptance. And sport was arguably for you the final frontier. You, it, it allowed you to reconnect with something you loved doing. I guess if there's a lesson to be learned, like for the people listening, it's just like don't give up because there are so many people out there telling you no and you can't do this, you're not good enough, you shouldn't be doing this, you don't have permission to do this. But just go out and do it anyway because the amount of joy I found in this rugby club, I hope my story is inspiring to people because I know a lot of my friends and a lot of people I, I speak with, like there's a lot of unhappiness out there in the world. I know it's all relative, but if you're not happy with where you are, what you're doing, like take a risk and, and be brave because really you've got nothing to lose. I don't know if a lot of people know, but I moved to London with no job. I bought a little camera and I started filming corporate videos and then I eventually pitched work to Channel 10 and worked really hard to teach myself how to shoot my own stories and kind of forge this path for myself. And it's all because of the fighting spirit that I developed from the bullying that I got because I had to survive that. And once I survived that, I now no nothing scares me anymore because I just think, what's the worst that can happen? And, and I take all these chances. And, and now it's led me to um, Washington, D.C., where I'm reporting on a presidential election. And I feel so blessed because it's, you know, my dream job. And if I just stayed in Brisbane, I just would be just doing the same old, same old, feeling really unhappy. However many weeks ago, I saw in my Twitter feed that the All Blacks tweeted about your movie and I started crying and thought how important and significant it was that the most powerful rugby club in the world <laughs> said, hey, everyone, this is really good. This is really important. Watch it. Oh my gosh, I can't, well, when you say it like that, it's incredible. And it sparked this intense conversation in New Zealand about LGBTQ people playing sport because there's never been an out All Blacks player, even though I don't know, but some sports journals I know say there are gay All Blacks or have been, but they just haven't come out. So it sparked this kind of crazy converse, conversation, which I just was blown away and <laughs> this will make me teary. I just remember thinking at the time, like, you know, that little kid who got to the point where I even like wrote a goodbye note. I, I was so ashamed of who I was. If I could tell that little kid one day, the All Blacks will be sharing your story and validating who you are. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? I used to put my head on my pillow when I was 13, 14, just wishing the gay away for hours and have all these sleepless nights and that night I put my head on the pillow and I had this giant smile 
and I was just like, everything is where it's meant to be and everything happened so you can be here in this moment. And um, I wouldn't change a thing now. So it was just, yeah, it was incredible. This episode was produced and edited by Ali Aitken. This has been a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. We'll see you next time. What do Tom Jones, Borat and Eddie Munster all have in common? You can hear them all on the Starstruck with Angela Bishop podcast. I'll give you all the behind-the-scenes goss on what went on with some of my most fascinating interviews over the years. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.